0: Oh,
1: Welcome everyone once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast about board games. We're going to mix things up this week. We are indeed going to talk about board games. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host. I call him the guy who needs to respect my property. John Waters called him the guerrilla filmmaker of his generation, and the Kingston police call him bizarrely self-incriminating. I have for you, auteur extraordinaire, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker?
2: Fantastic, Mark. How are you today?
1: I'm very well. I'm very well. And I just want to make reference to the fact that you've now fully reinvented the form. The unboxing video will never be the same again, thankfully. Yes, for those who haven't seen it, check out our Facebook page.
2: Yet another unboxing video that you need to check out.
1: Yes, it, it has been submitted to the appropriate authorities, and they will be contacting you directly. And other
2: swag news. Uh, there's no. I'm going to do another topic push. We've got our game sort of all in a row, and our list is going if you go to our guild page, I've started to uh, uh, make a list of all the games that we've reviewed with clickable links and all that other stuff. And we have our lineup for the next few months kind of set, if not totally set, sort of set. But please give us some topic ideas and put them in the in the guild. That would be great. Also, there's a cool little uh, voting thing in the guild. You get to, for this upcoming Shucks convention, you guys get to pick the games. Like, So if you're coming to Shucks and you want to play certain games that I've got... Vote on them and I'll bring them to the convention and we'll play them. That's a lot of social media stuff going on. I don't that know if is, I'm really comfortable with this level. It's crazy. Oh, and it's the last It's almost like we thing, know what we're doing. Very last thing. Mark. Yes. We don't advertise anywhere. We do not. We just started recording and we put it out there. It's true. We have these listeners because of you guys out there passing it along to your friends and stuff. So we just want to thank you for doing that. Keep up the great work. No one's going to know about us unless you tell them. So pass it along. Thanks again.
1: So, as I said, we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we are going to be doing a review of our feature game, which is Tapestry by Stonemeyer Games. Which Surprising no one. Straight from my porch to your earbuds. So, this week, games we played. I played Shards of Infinity. I am eagerly awaiting the next expansion to Shards of Infinity, namely the Shadows of Salvation. It's one of those titles I always have to look up to remember what it's called because it's appropriately epic and generic all at the same time. But I had a brief amount of time to kill, and Shards of Infinity is just really quick, and I wanted to play a really simple, straightforward, quick deck builder after the relatively unpleasant experience of Edge of Darkness and the pleasant but very involved experience of Xeno Shift is a very divisive game, divisive in that we are right and everyone else is wrong, in that we enjoy it, but it is still very long, and that is one of the things we criticized it for. And Shards of Infinity is super, super fast, and I was able to play it at its ideal player count, namely 2 My partner, after playing it, remarked, well, you know, a virtue of multiplayer Shards of Infinity is you get to spread the damage around, which I responded, that's actually what makes it terrible. Because multiplayer Shards of Infinity, unless you're playing the team rules or the new free-for-all rules in the first expansion, is pretty arbitrary. It's like, I guess I'll do five damage to you and six damage to you because I think you're winning? I don't know. And that's, you know, not a good look. Because I want to make enemies of everybody. (laughs) That too. But... It was, as I say, this was a two-player game, and I just really, really like the stripped-down, simple deck builders, a la the Realms games. And I think the Shards of Infinity is probably my favorite of a lot. And Shadows of Salvation is going to be introducing a small number of new cards, and also is going to be introducing a co-op mode for those who are always on the lookout for another co-op deck builder. Because co-op deck building is a pretty solid genre. Anyway, looking forward to that. Enjoyed my play of Shards of Infinity, and that was put out by Gary Arant and Justin Gary, with in no way ripping off any of the ideas of the Realm Games. They just came up with it all by themselves. I'm really surprised at how well they are supporting Shards of Infinity, and I'm really glad
2: they are, because it's a fantastic little game. There's no, you know, these weird gray areas. It's just straightforward, and has really cool little hooks about, you know, equipping your guys and having characters and stuff like that. Love it. You and I both got to play Bridges of Shangala. It's a game that came out in 2003, and it looks like it came out in 1970. (laughs) Plays a little bit like it came out in 1970. How so? Just in this particular way. I really felt as though it was like an undeveloped game. Like it was sort of like a part of a game. It's like, okay, that's really cool mechanism. Now what do we do? Like sort of thing I really felt as though it, it needed you know another step or it was sort of like a sideboard to something else that was going on I really think that it could truly sing if you like put in some sort of you know barter system or negotiation system or just some just something else built on top of
1: it that would I think it would really make it shine so I think this is probably just a difference of philosophy between the two of us because when a game like bridges of Shangri-la can be such a stripped down euro game, and it, the the rules are incredibly simple, which made it all the all the more incredible that I messed them up. Uh, you know, a culpa on that one. But I really appreciated the fact that the gameplay was so simple and stripped down. It was all a question of being able to visualize and anticipate the consequences of very simple actions. This is a game by Leo Colovini. Leo Colovini is famous for incredibly abstract games, and Bridges of Shangri-La is no exception. Nominally, it's a game about dragon breeders and yeti whisperers and rainmakers and such, but really, it's a very, very abstract Basically, it's an abstract dudes-on-a-map game, really, in a, in, a, in a very serious way, with subtle elements of competition, and, and I was very intrigued. Now, popular opinion is that your first few turns, or maybe even your first few games, are going to be a wash because you don't really understand the implications of what you're doing, and that was definitely the remarked experiences of everyone at the table we played with with four players. But having been relatively unimpressed with some of Colovini's other work, like Clans is probably his best-known game, I haven't tried Carolus Magnus. And it's actually getting reprinted in the near future by Cranio, I think, and with a couple of uh, popular house rules built into it. And I'm, I'm now I'm very curious about giving Carolus Magnus a try and trying Bridges of Shangri-La a little bit more, because... I think between the two of us, I think it's fair to say that I have slightly more enthusiasm for your incredibly stripped down, pared down Euro games. And I think as far as that was concerned, it was very interesting.
2: No, I, I agree with all your points. Like it, it's very, I don't want to say simplistic, because it makes it sound basic, but there's definitely a decision space on, because it's a like sort of action management. It's like you want to get the most out of your action. You want to be able to place your tokens out. You want to be really to anticipate what everyone else, else is doing, and they do a great job of that. You can sort of, you know, if you analyze the board you can see what's about to happen and you can you know play it's one of the games where you make other people take your turns for you you sort of just set your tokens up and they do all your dirty work for you and you just you're already over here working on the other part of the map while they're finishing what you started over here
1: or being parasitic in a way that you start a fight in a disadvantageous way because one of the geniuses of the Bridge of Shangri-La, it's, it's an awful lot about tempo. You can see that a conflict is going to build up, because again, these turns are very simple, and the con- anticipating the long-term consequences of, of these simple turns is the name of the game. But if you've managed yourself cleverly, you can start the fight in such a way that the dominant player wasn't mm-hmm. expecting, and rob them of the opportunity of doing their crushing blow. Because any linkage in this quote-unquote point-to-point war game-ish can only be used once. So rather than having the giant go and beat up the dwarf, as it were, you can have the dwarf attack the giant and thereby deprive somebody of a tremendous ability. That's just an example of some of the subtle elements that we were slowly starting to discover as like ignorant monkeys, we were just flinging our poo around the, 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 dark. the board. In the dark, with the wrong rules. So, I, I mean, I'm very intrigued to try it again. I wasn't a huge fan of the length. I think that... That's, well, that's what I was about yeah. to... When you
2: finished, I was about to go on to that. I think maybe that's why I have these feelings about it would be better if it was more, is maybe because of, of the length. Maybe because it's great, you know, great simplistically, but it would be better if it was shorter and that. But because of its length, I thought if we had something else tacked on, it would be better.
1: And it's not that it's super long, it's just that no. some of my concerns are that it is very easy for a player to get locked out. If they make a, a number of bad decisions, or if they fail to anticipate things properly, they can be in a position where they're they're more they're not out of the game, but they're not in serious contention. And so I'd be much happier if it were about a 45 minute, uh, very, very, very simple to the point Euro game, rather than more like a 75 to 90 minute, very, very simple paired down Euro game. But, that having been said, I want to explore it more by the proper rules. Bridges of Shangri-La. Enjoyed it. Got to play Vengeance. Vengeance is by Gordon Gaeha and Multi Mighty Boards. Was put out last year. This is the revenge movie simulator, I want to say. And... Honestly, the more I play it, the more I enjoy it. I still have problems with a number of fundamental structures of the game, the way there's no player interaction, the length is a problem. But honestly, all of those sort of more gamerly critiques fall behind in my lizard brain while I'm actually playing because I get swept up by the beautiful components that manage to cohere very, very well with the story. The structure is very satisfying. You go and murder a whole bunch of guys, and then you do a montage to train up, and then you murder a whole bunch more guys. And then something terrible happens to you because some gang member, for no earthly reason, try not to think too much about that, does something awful to you, and then you decide to go and murder them. and Anyhow... It's really, really, really enjoyable, and I'm I'm now actually getting a little bit uh, concerned about the planned expansions. The one the one introduce player interaction because uh, the uh, there's going to be a Kickstarter for more stuff because that's the way of things, and it's going to be called the director's cut. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and it's going to introduce some ability to mess with other players. But I kind of like the fact that once it's time to do the dice phase, it turns into kind of a cooperative experience because. It's not satisfying to watch your friend fail to get revenge on the ganger scumbags that ruined their avatar's life, or shattered their kneecap, or subjected them to a hallucinogenic bad trip or something like that. So I I don't know that I'll feel very with a great deal of satisfaction playing a card that said, aha, this attack missed, or whatever. I have no idea. And it's also actually one of the reasons why I'm somewhat loath to introduce the timed element. Because strictly speaking, You know, Mark, don't complain about the length and then ignore the fact that that strictly speaking, according to the grown-up rules, you're supposed to play a timed element when it comes time to play the dice game. But again, I'd rather be able to, you know, cooperate and say, oh look, you've got this skill and go ahead and murder more guys. Because it's about murdering more guys. That's what vengeance is about. Anyhow, I'm having a great deal of fun with Vengeance. It's winning friends in the local community. I'm sorry you didn't get a chance to try it because you've you've expressed an interest in playing Vengeance again. And I, I will say this: it probably is best solo because of how much theme it gets out of it. Because in the in the solo version, it's a curated experience tailored specifically to the character that you're playing. If an expansion somehow got some of those elements into the into the multiplayer game, well, then I I'd, I'd be all for it because it's already a very thematic experience multiplayer. It's even more thematic solo. So, I, I think Vengeance has more legs than I initially gave it credit for, and I'm very much looking forward to Gordon Kay, his, uh further output, both in the Vengeance system and more generally, and that was Vengeance. Now, Mark and I finally got to play
2: Slidey Quest, Slidey Quest-y, rolly ball, dexterity game with four full players,
1: and... I don't know about full, I mean, sometimes true. they seem to... Hughie and Dewey, I a guess... A little bit
2: short. ...can knock their heads together and come up with half an idea sometimes. It was still a great time, and it played out just like we expected. Lots of fun, lots of laughs, and I think it would be one of the greatest family games out there, and that's Slidey Quest. What do you think? I wish we would played with a timer. True. We still haven't downloaded. There's a whole app that you download, and it has, you know, time things. I'm wondering if there's, like, a story, maybe even themed music for each level, And that's the part of the fun that I'm having with the game as well because, you know, some people just slap on the next map and blah, 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 we have to go from here to here. Whereas I like to create the whole story. It's like, oh, your you know, your ship has crashed and you have to, you know, I... I I particularly just really enjoy this game.
1: Well, they packed a fair. Like, let, let, let's be fair. This is not one of those things where we're playing a tactical game and we've just created an entire narrative about some flunky who who flubbed his role because he was out taking a cigarette break or whatever, which we often do. There's a lot of of visual narrative packed into the boards. They've they thought very carefully about how to do this. And my, my chief complaint about with it playing four players is there was too much discussion and we took our time and it was too easy because we would stop, let the board be flat, and we'd be like, all right, I push it a little bit and then you push it a little bit if it gets too far, all right, here's what we're going to do. And then we did that 20 or so times. Now, the game was still, the game of slide Quest was still about 15 minutes, if that. It was very still very quick, but I would just like the challenge to go up a little bit. True. it's uh, I think it's mostly
2: the fact that they were both new to it, right? So I didn't really push to, you know, get done. Stop
1: to... making excuses.
2: Yeah, okay. I, f- I failed again and I, I ruined the experience. It's
1: time. It Look, okay. parenting so is sorry. very simple. The moment they're, I think, nine or so months old, you shove them out of the nest. Otherwise, they'll never learn. Sounds good to me. And that was SlideQuest. SlideQuest by Blue Orange Games. I finally got my hardback copy of Gaslands Refueled this week. I'm playing by the beta rules for some time. And Gaslands Refueled is the second edition of Gaslands, our much-beloved miniatures rule set where you play with Hot Wheels cards. Gaslands Refueled has more than doubled the number of sponsors available, so the, doubled the number of teams you can make, doubled the number of perks, rebalanced the perks, rebalanced the weapons. The primary uh, culprit from Gaslands was uh, rockets. They were too cheap and too effective. Rockets are gone. Long live Rockets. they're 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 new now they're more expensive and less good i really really like some of the new sponsors i was hardcore for warden in gaslands and now i'm a big vernie fan which you know is at least thematically appropriate because vernie used to be a prison prisoner under the warden and so i get to try with play with some of the new toys rc cars spawning little rc cars that you then uh, pilot to their ultimate destination and then they blow up dropping lots of mines played one of the new scenarios as well where you're trying to go get Cargo that then gives you little bennies and whoever has the most cargo wins. It was a great time. Played a three-player game and I will still maintain that although three-player Gaslands is not is probably not the, the most ideal setup, Gaslands as a miniature system does multiplayer far better than any other system that I've played. Especially since in most other systems you just can't play multiplayer flat; it's just not doable. So I'll give it that. And uh, now I'm really wishing. See, the thing is, one of one of the I've talked about this before, but one of the joys of playing Gaslands is suddenly wherever you go, where there's a Hot Wheels display, you get to look for more miniatures units. There was this El Camino, this red El Camino with flames down the sides that I held in my hands about three or four times when doing grocery shopping. And then now, Mark, you have enough units; it's fine. You don't. And now I wish I'd gotten that El Camino Walker. <laughs> There you go. Anyway, so that is my burning regret with respect to Gaslands. So did they tweak any of the scenarios? Like, did they change, you know, how some of
2: the scenarios work? Or yes. All, or did they just add new ones?
1: The scenarios had, uh, several of them have been tweaked, some of them have been removed, and uh, many of them have modified. The most important thing they did, of course, with respect to the scenarios, is they eliminated the typo in the Death Race scenario in the in the base game version of Gaslands. It was thoroughly unfortunate Because if you play by the rules as written, it leads to a weird experience. Anyway, so if you're ever playing Gaslands with the original book, which I still highly recommend, keep in mind that there's a misprint in the Death Race scenario. Some of the core scenarios, like Death Race, have remained mostly unchanged. They've been only a couple small little tweaks, which is very true of the overall rule set in Gaslands. They haven't really changed any of the fundamentals. They've made a couple things more clear. They've altered the structure a bit so that it works the same way, but it's more transparent how audience votes work, for example but it's just more excellence from Gaslands. There were these free supplements called Time Extended for Gaslands, a total of four of them. And Refueled now has all of those in the core book, plus yet more stuff. And it's just great. It's just more toys to play with, and there was already lots of really interesting variety in terms of team builds before, and now there's just more. It's it was a, They're going from strength to strength, and Mike Hutchison has put in a lot of work to refine the system, and it's just a blast. It's really, really fun to play. I've introduced Gaslions to a couple of new players, and they picked it up right away. Yeah, some of the nuances about timing get a little tricky, but, you know, follow a player ed and you'll be fine. But uh, a good
2: time with Gaslions. Yeah, because what... What people don't like, post-apocalyptic road rage, you know, Mad Max type games, and they just did a great job of bringing
1: that feeling onto the tabletop. Absolutely. And another excellent production from Osprey Publishing, you know, between their board games with Undaunted Normandy was put out by Osprey. They're, they put out a number of, well, the, the Wildlands and the Judge Dread version, although not necessarily our cup of tea, were very impressive visually. I can't get enough of their miniatures game rule sets. Uh, they're doing a great job lately, and they've been going from strength to strength, so kudos to them. And that was Gaslands Refuel.
2: Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I'm going to go right into this one because you just talked about Kickstarters. I'm just going to talk, I'm just going to say a couple of facts. <laughs> People right. might take this as opinion, or you know, what you can take it however you want. These we are, don't we don't trade in these opinions. Are we trade in facts. Yes. When when a publisher does a Kickstarter, the publisher gets one hundred percent of the funds received. Minus is, you know the that is not true. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, of the price of the game, you know, minus the Kickstarter, whatever. Minus, if they, if minus they,
1: the fee, minus the fees from Kickstarter, minus the fees from whatever payment they're doing. Yes, And exactly. that's including but, the money us, that they then have to pay to the these fulfiller, are, to the shipper, and all these things. Yes,
2: these are v- very minimal compared to if they go through normal channels, right? Where they sell the game at a heavy discount to the distributor. The, sure. The distributor then has to turn around and sell it at, heavy, at a discount to the local game store. And then the local game store sells it at the retail price. Okay, these are just facts. You know, whether they're good or bad. No, I'm just saying they are. Sure, These sure, are facts, sure. right? So, long story short, here we go. c has now announced their upcoming Kickstarter next week. It is called Time Machine. It's not the name of the game, Mark. It means now we get to go back in time <laughs> and pick up these games that we might have missed out on. The three main ones that they're they're uh, putting on the page are Hate, Green Horde, and Rising Sun, with a whole bunch of side stuff on the side where you can get like special stuff for Arcadia Quest, World of Smog, uh, Blood Rage, and many others.
1: It says. So wait. This is an opportunity for consumers to get a pledge of those games with all the Kickstarter exclusives. Full involved. pledge, it says. Interesting,
2: very interesting. Due to the fact, and what you know, like, why is it all changed like this? Why didn't they just do a new hate? From the you know the few rumors I heard and the few stories, and I tried to look it on the Kickstarter, and you know the 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 terms and conditions are too you know are fairly vast, and I didn't want to spend hours looking through it. But from what I get through it, you cannot put the exact same thing up twice. Right. So they've said that now they have, like, soundtracks and art books for these projects. So.
1: Soundtracks are the typical trick. Yeah. I remember when the Claustrophobia 1648 reprint went up, and they were just selling their remaining copies. They said that that you weren't buying a game for $79, because they'd already done that. Now you're buying a soundtrack for $79, and it came with a free game. Yes. So that's the typical sleight of hand that often comes Well, out.
2: I've... Even myself, I'm incriminating myself here. Even I myself, as a, as a terrible child, did the same misconception. Where at school you weren't supposed to sell these particular things, and I taped a you know Mexican coin to it and said, "You're not actually buying these things. You're buying this Mexican coin,"
1: and and off we went. I think our I think our listeners are adult enough to hear your actual criminality. They're already familiar with you as a criminal. Why we have we have evidence on the internet already of some of your criminal acts? What were you selling, Walker? I was
2: selling cigarettes, Mark. Sure, I had gone to Mexico and and brought back lots and lots of cigarettes, and we we're, were selling them at my. What's school. the statute of limitation? That's for- terrible. I'm a terrible person. I have many regrets, <laughs> but it's the same sort of trick. But anyway, long story short, Simon's coming out with this
1: Kickstarter. Well, they'd already gone back to the well, as it were, to try to give people access to the Blood Rage exclusives. When they did Blood Rage Digital, they said, you, you can't get Fenrir, who's the obviously superior version. it said, we'll give you Garm, who, you know, obviously is a second-tier mythological wolf. I can so only if agree. So peop- people, if people are satisfied with that, whatever. Look, I don't have a lot of people have very violent opinions about these things you know the kickstarter exclusives are the bane of civilization and need to be destroyed and then there're the people who say that how dare you undermine the value of my kickstarter exclusives you promised me that no one else would ever get these toys my neighbor's enjoyment necessarily impedes my own i don't agree with either of those positions necessarily i find it hard to get too worked up but it is interesting that they're that they're playing a little bit with their distribution model games workshop has announced Warhammer Underworlds Beastgrave. Yeah, I'm just getting sad now because I, I, nobody will play Warhammer Underworlds with me. Well,
2: you say like they they don't want to. It's just, it's a very, for my case, it's very just much a time restraint because I, I really enjoy this whole system, you know, deck building. It has the best... It really does have the best of all worlds. It has a deck building element where you sit and you craft your deck like old magic style where you sit and you look at all your cards and you have a like card limit and you try to get the best out of your deck. And then it also has a miniature component where there's like strategy and outflanking and doing like crazy attacks with rolling dice. I love Warhammer Underworlds
1: I do too but actually this is you know the reason why I played Shards of Infinity I had about an hour to kill and uh, somebody wanted to be introduced to a game and I, I pulled out Shards of Infinity I actually considered Warhammer Underworlds but the problem is that's actually one of the reasons why Warhammer Underworlds is so difficult to introduce new players because there aren't starter decks anymore there used to be starter decks, but only for a very small number of factions, and and the community has done a reasonably good job of trying to come up with, with starter decks, but if I wanted to teach somebody new Warhammer Underworlds, it's not like I can sit them in front of a faction and say, well, here you go. The miniatures have already been selected, but building the deck is so fundamental to the game that it's just a little intimidating. You know, even compared to something like Aristea, where Aristea you pick whatever characters you want, but that part is relatively simple, and then the actual deck construction is straightforward, so you can do it as a first time. Anyway, I'm just disappointed. I, I agree with you. Warhammer Underworlds is a fabulous game, and the last, every time I've played it, I've seriously enjoyed it. It's been a while, because there's no local community for it, and so there's no regular rotation for it, and uh, you don't play two-player games anymore very much, and uh, so as a result, I I'm, I'm several sets behind. I didn't get all of the the crews from Night Vault and now there's Beastgrave and next there's going to be Nord Mortis or whatever. I mean, so
2: I did buy Night Vault. It's still sitting on my on my underworlds pile still with shrink wrap on it.
1: Yeah, I noticed. I know, right?
2: So anyway, in this box they are going to have Beastmen and War Dancers, some sort of elvish war dancery wood elf type faction that has animals and I love that So that's Warhammer Underworld's Beastgrave.
1: On the topic of game systems marching on, there is going to be a new printing with new graphics of Sidereal Confluence, one of the best games of the past few years. Oh. This is going to be Sidereal Confluence Remastered, and they've done a number of things. Number one, they've gotten rid of the terrible subtitles, so instead of Sidereal Confluence, a game of trading and negotiation of the Elysian Quadrant, it's going to be Sidereal Confluence. And then at the bottom, it just says, a game of trading and negotiation of the Elysian Quadrant. Subtle difference, but important. Uh, secondly, there's going to be new cover art, which is great because the original cover art was pretty weird. And this is going to be done by Quan Chi Moria, famed board game artist. And I'm not too sure about the new components. They're going to redesign some of the cards, but I, I, I have some complaints about that. But hopefully within the box, they're going to include a, fun? Co- a co-host with oh. better taste. Gotcha. Who is able to appreciate a brilliant game gotcha. and indeed able to play a negotiation game at all.
2: I was hoping that they'd actually have the fun there because they'd probably have a big pile of it left over from the first time they made the game. So they could throw some of that in the box. would be great. I,
1: I respect your position and I hear where you're coming from. Generally speaking, though, with respect to games, you have to play them in order to have fun with them. So I can understand why you don't enjoy negotiation games, because you just want to sit in the corner crossing your arms with a like sourpuss and <laughs> respond to any overtures of trading of under any terms of saying, stop bullying me, stop bullying me. And then you just sit there with your pile of cubes and nothing happens. That doesn't sound like a very good game. It's a shame that you play it that way.
2: Moving on, <laughs> there is a very interesting game. Very not much, not much about it. But when they say, you know, over 100 detailed miniatures and they show you these built you know, classic buildings of Rome, and the game is called Foundations of Rome. Sounds interesting. It's by Arcane Wonders. They always do a great job. Looking forward to seeing more information on it. Kickstarter coming up very soon.
1: Final note for me is another Kickstarter project that I'm probably going to try to avoid, but oh my goodness, it's so pretty. It's called Obsidian Protocol. This is a mech-based miniatures game by a first-time designer and first-time publisher, and... (laughs) All the kinds of warning signs you could want operating out of China, which also is potentially uh, a red flag by virtue of uh, transnational commercial dealings being occasionally fraught, whether by uh, legal standards or political developments but it is a game where you have different mech parts and you get to customize your mech with different leg parts and a different torso part and different arm parts and everything, and oh my goodness, it looks so pretty. It looks so pretty, and they're all just renders because there's a non-zero possibility that renders is all they will ever be because the project is funded and they're going to give the money, but who knows what's going to happen after that. So I'm going to try to exercise willpower here, and I'm just going to go back and look and, you know, gaze upon the beautiful sculpts, but of course sorry, I shouldn't even call them sculpts. They're not sculpts yet. I think they only get to be called sculpts once they've sculpted something. <laughs> and so as a platonic ideal, it's a lovely set of mechs, and I'm very weak to the mechs, but I'm probably gonna try to exercise self restraint over this and that's Obsidian Protocol. How
2: about this other game? I think we only talked about it on the guild. We should talk about it here. Isn't the Street Masters guys are doing a a superhero game? That seems interesting.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, things come full circle. Sentinels of the Multiverse spawn Street Masters. and now they're going to be using their modular deck system for a superhero game. Do you remember what it's called?
2: Uh, fly Fly, Pow Pow, Eye Laser, Shoot,
1: Shoot, Shoot. No, I don't think that. Maybe the subtitle. Uh, maybe they took the same school of subtitle creation as the people behind Sidereal Confluence did. It's called Hour of Need. The art looks pretty good. I have to say, given the tendency, including Sentinels of the Multiverse and including Street Masters even, to have very boob-heavy artwork of that particular genre, you know, skin-tight outfits and and hyper-idealized human forms already, uh, I'm glad at least that so far the art doesn't seem to be too sexualized. That's one minor note. And uh, they say, they emphasize in the little burb, we, we, we have very little information about it, it's going to hit Kickstarter in November, but they say that it's going to be simple. I hope that means... Simple as in easy to execute, a la Street Masters. Not simple as in, well, it's all on cards scattered all over the place, a la Brook City. But we'll see.
2: And very tough bread. Very lastly, Root is going to have an RPG. I thought that was kind of interesting. So if you want to adventure in the land of Root and and slay your foes in a role-playing
1: setting, it's coming out on Kickstarter. It's all yours. It's appropriate enough, given that playing the Vagabond kind of feels like you're doing a more sort of... Elder Scrollsy kind of CRPG thing than everybody else. So, again, things have come full circle.
2: Full circle again. And that is all of the news and why it really doesn't matter. On to the feature game, which is Tapestry from Stonemeyer Games. What is the illustrious history of, of Stonemeyer Games, Mark?
1: Here's the thing, and I don't even mean this as a criticism. I'm not even complaining. It has gotten to the point now... Where Stonemeyer Games in general, and Jamie Stegmeyer in particular, is so influential and so present in the hobby that it's hard to talk about either of them without automatically identifying yourself as being in a certain camp, because the man is divisive. So Jamie Stegmeyer came onto the scene by first publishing Viticulture almost 10 years ago now, in 2011. He followed up with Euphoria, Scythe, Charterstone. Uh, he was involved in publishing, though did not design Wingspin, and now he's put out Tapestry. And these are... Also kind of divisive games. We're not huge fans of a lot of the catalog of Stonemeyer, with the exception of Scythe. Scythe is also very divisive. A lot of people love it, but a lot of people hate it. Again, there's there's pronounced disagreement amongst many of our listeners as to Scythe's relative merits. I'm positive about Scythe. Walker is more positive about Scythe, and I think that's fair to say. But as a personality, as a personality in the publishing field, Jamie Stegmeier is now almost larger than life. And he's very transparent about a number of practices, less transparent about some others. He's very good at publishing blog entries about what it is to be a publisher. He's been very transparent about that end. He's gotten in some problems with some distribution kerfuffles over his past couple of games. But I will say the following with respect to Tapestry. He was very open. There are going to be pre-orders available at a certain time and a certain date, and then they sold out in a couple of days. Not five seconds, the way some other internet things did in a couple of days. And now he's still getting flack for, oh, why didn't you have enough for my pre-order? It's like, well, I mean, look, if you you print 25,000 copies of something in a market like board gaming and it all sells out... That sounds like one of the one of them. They're good problems to have as a publisher rather than a bad one. And I'm not willing to blame him for not having produced enough. He was very transparent about how you were going to get it and why. In part because he was responding to the Wingspan stuff. So we don't have a particular opinion on Jamie Stegmeier. We're probably alone in this. The internet seems to love to have an opinion on the guy and and his publishing. We are just going to try to evaluate his games as games. Tapestry is Stonemeyer Games' Civ game that they released this year. Walker, what do you do in Tapestry? In Tapestry, you really need to roll with the
2: punches. You have to find a Tapestry card that is super overpowered and works with your really super overpowered Civ. And if you don't, just give up on winning. And this is being like semi-serious, right? Just give up on winning and enjoy playing the game because if these two things don't sync up or you don't find the cards that you need, then you really have no chance. Now, the ongoing... Uh, phrase in this somewhat review is going to be because theme. So if something doesn't make sense, just write because theme behind it and you'll understand it's because theme. So it's much like Mark said to me earlier, you're trying to link up actions because eventually there is a, a solid action for you to do. This action's not as good unless I do this action first. This action's not as good unless I do this first. So you're linking all these together, much like Scythe. The
1: the way I interpret it is it's efficiency chaining. Efficiency, that's it. An efficient action. All of your actions are inefficient, and you feel like if you had a limited amount of of actions or an unlimited, unlimited amount of time to prepare, you'd be able to accomplish something significant. And you can see that significant accomplishment. But you have to make a compromise and do those inefficient things first. I feel this way when I, play Scythe, when I play Scythe. I feel this way when I play Feast for Odin. I feel this way when I play Goa, particularly, very often in Agricola as well. And it's very much true in Tapestry as well. You, you, you know what the good move is, and you know what the perfect move is. And sometimes the, the clever play is differentiating the perfect from the good and accepting that many of your early actions are just going to be inefficient and know that. Another thing about Tapestry, it's much like
2: Gaia Project in which it's you want to build a resource engine because it's one of these games where you, you know, slowly exhaust all your resources and you have to end your round or end your era. So you want to get this huge, you know, resource engine going while doing other things so you can prolong your era so you can get more points at the end of the game.
1: Okay, so let's talk about theme for a bit. I would like to start off. I thought we were going to go right to the negative. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I refuse to submit to your arbitrary, first we do the good things and then we do the that, bad that's things structure. I, that's I don't, I don't that's do fine. things that way. I would like to issue a public apology to innovation because previously I had said that innovation was the most laughably bad theming for a civilization game ever. It has uh, thoroughly and efficiently been dethroned. And actually, Plain Tapestry has made me appreciate innovation's theming far more More on that later. I would go so far as to say that the theming in Tapestry is kind of embarrassing, because you could have themed Tapestry in any number of generic Euro themes, and they would have been unobtrusive. But the theming in Tapestry, for my play experience, is so bad that it detracts from the game itself.
2: Yes, because it's the promise and the expectation, right? Because you have... uh all of these fantastic buildings, you have this map, you have these, this so, so-called technology deck, so you think you're going to be advancing, it's this, and the fact that they put it out there as a Civ game, so you have this expectation that you're going to be building a civilization, that it's going to be this big Civ game, and all the components, much like Scythe with giant robots, make you feel it's going to be this, you know, mech attack game, and the fact that it's not even
1: close to that makes it all that much worse. So let's talk about the technologies, because I think that that that's one of the good examples, Uh, I just made a list of some of the last technologies we we saw in our last game. Time travel, lithium-ion batteries, eyeglasses, and the nail. I don't object to how mundane a lot of these technologies are. That part's fine. The part that I really don't like is how none of the technologies matter. They're all just grist for the mill. You get a tech not because it's a specific thing that does a specific thing most of the time. It's just because... On As part of your income board, you score for all the texts you have. So I'm going down that track. I might as well get as many texts as I can. And then you don't even notice what they are as you upgrade them because upgrading concrete gives you a resource. I can't even remember what resource it gives you. Upgrading eyeglasses gives you some random thing. There are the only texts that have any kind of thematic association with anything are the ones that give you a special landmark building at the end of it. And more on that later, because I do like the land. That's funny that you said that, because that last game we just played, I had nine, over nine techs,
2: because I had nine at a point, I got rid of a bunch, and I even got more. So over nine techs, I can't even tell you what one of them is.
1: Yeah, that was was not that long ago. It was today. I
2: don't know, because all I was looking at was the benefit of what you got, because the rest didn't matter, because I can't say that I've played every Civ game, Mark, but in every (laughs) Civ game that I have played, techs not only come out in a specific order that makes sense, but they also link with other SIVs. Like you have to have I mean other texts. You have to have this tech right. before you get that. Now there's this pre there are pre on the text in order for you to like advance them. That is something, but really I don't remember ever in any of the games that stopped us from advancing it. I don't remember ever happening, you know, you can't do that. A couple
1: times it happened, but really, there are a number of ways to overcome it, and generally speaking, by the end of the game, they're, they've are they all been met anyway, because it's based on you and your neighbors, which is a feeble attempt to introduce some degree of player interaction, more on that later. And you end up, the, the, the traditional criticism that I have of Civ games, and the example that I typically use is Through the Ages, where you have Napoleon leading a tank division, conquering you know the Colossus of Rhodes or whatever. And tapestry really dials this up to eleven because frequently in the last game we played, I had uh, hunter gatherers with neural implants who had uh, you know mastered information transfer but had uh, no military presence. They were still in uh, they they were still involved in in crude uh, uh, cultural manifestations. I can't even remember what it's called because again there are these four different tracks based on what buildings you build. I always have to look up which ones which. The yellow the yellow houses are called markets, and the gray ones are actually called Houses there, and then farms and I. I have difficulty remembering, despite having played this game many times. And every time you build a building, that's kind of sort of inventing a new cultural milestone. And I never remember what any of them are because it's so incredibly pointless and generic and just grist for this point generating mill. Civ games are typically bad, but this one is kind of hilarious. And there's like a there's a tech that you, that
2: you get, and they don't even talk about. It's like the first building that you that you get you actually get the tech crossword puzzle and you bring your house over (laughs) to your crossword puzzle
1: and you get four across and nine down and you get more points. So yeah, so there's this capital board and that's where all of your buildings go. And there are two kinds of buildings. There are just appropriately enough capital buildings, which are just these production buildings that you build to generate more income as a general rule. And then there are these landmarks and much has been made of these landmarks. There are these pre-painted plastic miniatures of varying shapes and sizes that cover up a variable amount of squares on your capital board. And I have to say, I was worried based on reading the rules and understanding how the game worked because they don't give you any permanent enduring benefit. You just plop them down and that's it. And I was worried that it was going to be one of those situations where there's this incredibly expensive, incredibly elaborate component that you, A, almost never interact with and, B, when you do, it doesn't really matter. The paradigmatic example of this for me, actually, is a game we both really like, Lords of Hellas. The Lords of Hellas monuments are beautiful pieces that you never, ever mess with and you're never you're never going to see them all built. It's, it's almost impossible to see all... All of them built, and very often you don't see any of them built. I was worried that was going to happen, and that I was completely unfounded. I love the landmarks; they're beautiful. The toy factor is huge. They're consequential. Getting one is a significant achievement, and they're very, very valuable and useful. And you get to look over at your board, and yes, you do have a launch pad for a rocket coexisting next to a to a a, a crude wooden shack. But don't—that's one of those areas where I'm willing to say, don't sweat the details. Just take in the vista, and that part I thought was really cool and leveraged the toy value i can tell that you're skeptical i hope you're being sarcastic no i'm being sincere i thought that the capital board was the best part of it of of tapestry no
2: no just no just no like seriously it's 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 fill columns to get more points because theme
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh sure so so uh, all right mechanically speaking it again didn't make a whole lot of sense, but at the very least, here was a visual representation of accomplishments that you'd done in the game that were tactilely cool, visually engaging, and fun to deal with. All of those things, which true. and and look that that to me is an engaging gameplay experience. So dealing with the capital board was neat. Now, do I think that the balance is quite right? Not really, because more on this later, I think that the capital board probably should have been smaller because I think there's a little bit too much effort you need to put into filling those rows and columns to get points as opposed to the other routes to get points For example, there are scoring opportunities that you unlock on your track for conquered territories techs and filling up rows and columns and a row and a column is about 9 spaces and you're going to get a discount based on various other factors, but filling up say 5-ish spaces of a row or a column is significantly harder than just conquering a territory or getting a tech so I didn't feel like the payoff was sufficient uh, given the amount of effort involved but I was always inclined to try to do it precisely because it was the most fun part of the game for me I and mean, I don't like spatial puzzles but nonetheless part of it was the toy factor I kept going back to, to filling up those rows and columns I'm
2: just gonna I'm gonna touch on a point there of a, of a good point was the fact that as you put out the buildings and uncovers ways to get victory points and the fact that there was multiple scoring opportunities there. I, I like that because, you know, sometimes it's, it's like, okay, I'm going to get nine points every time, even though I'm heavily invested in this. This, if you heavily invest it, then it, you know, it's times one, times two, times three, and it gets even more. I, re- I
1: like that part of the game. I did too, but this goes back to, to one of our, one of the things we mentioned about text. This is a big efficiency puzzle where everything is just a cog and more grist for the mill. So you can race up one track to score multiple times for every tech, and then you're encouraged to build those buildings and get a lot of techs, or you can race up a different building track to score a lot f- uh, uh, to score for every conquered territory, and then you just try to conquer territories. At the end of the day, it's still four times six, right? You're, that, that's where you're ending up with, four times six for points, and you don't really care about the geography of what's going on. You don't really care about the tech you're doing. You don't really care about the thematic connection of this track and this other thing. You're all... I was hopeful after playing the first time. I'm like, eh. That didn't really grab me or inspire me, but there's lots of different tracks you can go up. Let's see if going up the different ones is is more fun. They all feel the same to me. They do. And it's and it's
2: like we said, it's based on you really need to look at the tapestry cards you get and the sieve you've got, and then that's going to steer you in what track that you're going to go up. So you made a crack about getting the right tapestry
1: card. You want to elaborate on that? At the beginning of the game,
2: you get a tapestry card. There are many spaces on these tracks that you move up that can get you more tapestry cards. There are some techs that you can also get tapestry cards. So at any given time, you're going to have some tapestry cards in your hand. One of the steps of the end of an era, and the end of an era will trigger whenever you want. You're either taking a normal turn that's going up a track and spending resources, or you're going to be out of resources and you want to end your era. And one of the steps is to play this tapestry card. And it can do all sorts of things up to and including nothing, or getting you 10 points, or getting you even more than 10
1: points. After the first few games, I thought that the Tapestry cards were not particularly interesting and relatively samey. And I had seen some complaints on BoardGameGeek about attempting to balance out the luck factor in the game. And I thought that on the face of it that those were largely overblown. And then I started seeing more of the Tapestry deck. And it really is the case that lots of tapestry cards seem on their face ridiculous when compared to others either ridiculously weak or ridiculously strong. Some of them are situational absolutely. Like there's a card many many of the cards say for the remainder of this era score three points whenever you do a thing and sure you can bide your time and save up that thing for that particular era and try to rack up as many points as you can. Those are the interesting ones you get to look at it in your hand, you get to make forward planning you get to make trade-offs about timing and efficiency those ones are fine. Those ones are sometimes actually pretty good. But then there are the ones, there's the lazy one that says, copy any face-up tapestry card anywhere on anyone's tableau. That's just a little bit lazy. And then there are the ones that are just, quite frankly, on on the face of it, rather ridiculous. There's the one that says, take any landmark building you want and plop it somewhere in your mat, which is a great way to hose somebody that has been working towards getting that landmark. And the landmark buildings are very consequential. That was the first one we saw, where it hit the table and we were like, wait, what? And uh, quite frankly, I'm I don't take my games of tapestry very seriously. But in a in a game where it's all about efficiency and it's all about being able to eke every last point out of this efficiency puzzle, if you get a mitful of crappy tapestry cards because you're probably not going to see that many over the course of the game, but your opponent sees a whole bunch of good ones, that could be the game.
2: Since so we're talking about randomness, I have a whole whole section here on randomness, which equals the tapestry cards, like we just talked about. Randomly off the top, the civ, the the tech cards, the technology cards that we just talked about, is one deck that's shuffled, and you're going to get
1: them in whatever order they come out in. But that for me is more a thematic problem than a gameplay problem. They're, they're all so generic that it's not true. a huge deal. This is true, but it, it
2: could lead to, you know, possibly being, anyway. Move, and then there's the there's a dice. There's dice in the game that you're rolling that are going to come up completely random. That could give you sometimes nothing, and sometimes you know seven victory points, which isn't terrible as all. And then there's the sieve cards that you get at the beginning of the game. Now, these are much like the Tapestry cards, I feel, where some of them are completely useless and others seem way overpowered.
1: They strike me as less problematic than the Tapestry cards, all told. But yes some of them seem, well, my bigger problem actually with the civs is not necessarily the relative value of points. It's just some of them encourage you not to play with the fun stuff. For example, the last civ that you had says you can take your capital buildings and instead of placing them on your capital board, you can just place them on the civ mat and start getting these other benefits and honestly that just seems like encouraging you to stay away from some of the fun interesting bits of the game rather than implicating your capital buildings in this if it this other grid puzzle that was you know again it was a puzzle and you have your thematic problems with it and that's fine but i liked it and now it's like oh d- don't bother with that anymore instead do this other thing just for this other set of bennies and at that point i i i really don't think that they were necessarily leading with their best design ideas that's all my stuff on randomness some, well, let's hit some what you have some randomness Well just a final a final kicker about the randomness is the the whole aspect of conquest. There's conquering other players' territories over the course of the game, which most of the time is pretty insignificant, but in some instances could be a swing of about 20 points, case depending by virtue of how the game has achievements and one of them is conquering a couple places and one of them is having the center center hex. If you're attacking somebody's area, you have one shot at doing it based on how the game works. You can't go and then try to reconquest something if there's already if, there's, if it's already been attacked twice. They either have a tapestry card that says trap or they don't. So you just take your action. They either have a trap card or they don't. And honestly, although you don't see a whole lot of tapestry cards over the course of the game, I've only ever once not seen a trap card in my own hand. So... The overwhelming majority of the time, when you attack somebody else's province, they play a trap card. And then, if somebody else later on in the turn order wants to attack that same player, they're the ones who benefit from the sucker who teased the trap card out of their hand. It's an attempt to introduce some degree of variance into the combat, some degree of excitement, some degree of verve, some degree of player interaction, and I hate it. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And they've tried to off-balance it by making it worth 10
2: victory points. But I think there's a lot of tapestry cards in there that will give you a lot more than 10 victory points. Because not only do you get the 10 victory points, but there's also no other ability if you're playing it as an error card.
1: Yeah, if you're playing it as an error card, it's just a flat 10 points. Which, again, maybe it's maybe it'll be situationally good for you. Maybe you don't have any better tapestry cards to play. It's also really boring. Exactly.
2: Let's just talk about the map, because we just talked about Conquest and the fact that it's the main part of the board, it takes up the whole middle area, and I found it quite not ever used or not quite interesting. And as you know, an aside, and I think it was a waste of time.
1: I thought the tiling was cute. I mean, I like most tiling, and I thought the tiling was was pretty good. You get these exploration tiles, and then when you do a certain exploration action, you put out a new tile, exploring more of the world, and you get a bonus and points based on how how much things match up. And I kind of enjoyed that, but. Insofar as the map tried to allow some degree of combat or conquest, I thought it was aggressively unsatisfying or incredibly fluky at yeah, worst. I, I think
2: that's I mean like one thing I have here is that there's no interaction and that this board is the only thing. And unless your Civ you know, is gonna give you points or your tapestry card that you played is giving you points for moving around that board. Then there's really no reason to do it.
1: Well, or if you've decided to get the points for conquest of territories rather than the points for techs or the points for one of the other tracks that you could have run up. I mean, obviously in an ideal situation you'd run up all of them, but in practice you tend to focus on a couple. But again, it, and as I say, it all tends to shake out the same. The uh, the 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 whole spatial exploration thing. If you really run up the exploration track, you can now explore space. The, the kicker is, and this is actually a, a very much in keeping with the way tapestry squanders its theme, what should be really cool is in fact less cool than terrestrial exploration. In terrestrial exploration, you need to get the, the tiles, figure out where you'd like to put them, and then do an explore action, put them on the board, and you get points for matching and all that other stuff. The space exploration is just eh, pull a tile off the uh, off a stack, play it, get some some degree of bonuses. I, I'm not suggesting that it needed a whole bunch of rules mechanisms, but it's very telling that the space exploration that you get near the end of the game is less fun and less intricate than just the terrestrial exploration was.
2: Yeah, well, that's the one thing I had when I talked about going up these tracks. When you get to the end, there's no real sense of accomplishment. It's like, okay, I'm at the end. You get a semi-benefit. If you were the first one, you get some victory points, but I didn't feel like this big sense of accomplishment of, you know, finishing this tech
1: track. I kind of liked the end... Honestly, I kind of like the end of the other three tracks. If you if you top out on the military track, you get another civilization power, which most of the time, the game is so far gone that you're not going to be able to benefit from it. But it feels like an accomplishment, and now you get to say, oh, I'm not just militant anymore. I am the militant leaders. That That's kind of cool. I did enjoy that. I will give credit for that. All right. We talked about components. They're all fantastic.
2: Love the components. The sheets. Uh, have a semi-sandpaper texture to them because you're going to be setting up a whole bunch of buildings like you would in like a Gaia Project or a Terra Mystica and as you pull these off you get benefits so you don't want your stuff sliding around so it's nice that there has this nice texture to it. The art is very you know streamlined across the uh, the whole board. It's nice and even. It, it fits their you know quote unquote theme. And I thought the symbology was fantastic. It's very clear, precise throughout the whole game. Once you get it down, you know exactly what everything does. There's no re- reason to look back in the rulebook for everything because everything's sort of laid out on the board.
1: A lot of noise was made about how Tapestry only has a four-page rulebook, and that's true. And it's a very simple game, a very
2: easy game to teach. The flow is fantastic. It's much like Scythe. Once you start up, you're going around and around and around. There's no, there's sort of like an end of your era turn. But other than that, it's, it, I like how it works. Except for the fact that sort of when you run of, when you run of resources, you end your era and you're going to do this five times. So technically some people are going to end the game before others. So some people could be sitting around there and you said in one of your games, it was almost, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. Someone was At least. There. Until, you know, they finally got to
1: see who won the game. So that part could be good or bad. I I think it's just bad, honestly. Everyone always has to sit out a few rounds of play. And by the end of the game, turns are taking a fair amount of time. And based on the tempo of things, somebody could be in it for a very long time. I found found about 20 to 30 minutes in a multiplayer game of four or five players to be the norm. In three players where everyone knows their stuff, you're still talking about a reliable 10 to 15 minutes. Because Tapestry is pretty long. It's a solid half hour per player. Despite the fact that it's very simple, it takes a long time. And most of the time, it's just a function of, well, I get three points from this and four points from this and I get this other thing and I get this bonus and okay and move on. So the flow is good, but sometimes the turns get a little intricate. And honestly, this issue of different differential eras, I'm in era two, you're in era three, or someone else has gone on the first era four. I was excited about that possibility. That's what I have down here. The idea of it is yes. interesting. Yeah, the idea, the idea of it is very interesting. And in practice, it doesn't mean anything. This is one of those areas where, again, I have to apologize to Innovation. I didn't appreciate how well Innovation did it, because you could be onto this five stack in Innovation while I'm still stuck in the three, and for the most part, that's an advantage to you, but there's this subtle little element in Innovation where if you're in an advanced stack, you're not getting castles anymore, and so I could literally be the barbarians at the gate with my primitive technology still predating on you because you can't defend against my primitive stuff because you haven't quite gotten the right armaments up yet, and I had thought that innovation was entirely themeless. But when I saw how Tapestry failed to capitalize on this differential era business, because, you know, again, much like the text not being structured in any way, the Tapestry cards aren't structured in any way either. And so being in Era 4 is fundamentally the same as being in Era 2. It's just a function of what will best fit my resource efficiency engine.
2: Yeah, that being said, I, have that, like, I think there is a huge decision space here. The fact that you have all these Tapestry cards, if you can get them. And the fact how they can intertwine with your sieve and where you are on the board. So when when you know your error is coming up, you sort of have to plan out, okay, what am I going to do for these next eight turns? What kind of resources am I going to be getting? What is the best card to use and how am I going to utilize this? I thought that was a very interesting part
1: of the game. I agree with you. The decision space is very, very, very large, like an efficiency puzzle ought to have. But again, I can't. I couldn't shake the feeling that no matter what end I got to, it all felt like all the other versions. And Civilization games, as a rule, tend to be pretty good at offering different varieties, especially when they have special powers and different texts to invent and, th- and things like that. But honestly, every game of Tapestry feels to me like every other game of Tapestry. That's what I mean. It
2: seems like there's a lot of different strategies, but it all just comes down to doing the same thing you're pumping this for this many victory points or you're pumping this for this many victory points i think it just comes down to you need to pick a different track than somebody else because you know they're getting the buildings you know you don't want to race them up the same track because you know you won't get any of the buildings you will not get any of the benefits they're going to get them all so you want everyone sort of i think it's one of these like forced uh player interaction things you know where it's like okay well he's going up that track i'm going to try this other track and the other part i have is like when you end the era the first, it's like another forced player interaction where you sort of want to end before the other players because you get free resources when you end your when you end the era before everybody else
1: honestly it's it's sufficiently Insignificant that I didn't really think that it was a problem. It was no, just a minor, not a problem. I, but I mean, the fact that they have it there just means like it's. Like, I think just... actually it's a, it's a minor catch up element because if you sometimes, especially in the early eras, if you tap out earlier, if you run out of resources er, sooner than your opponents in the early areas eras of Tapestry, that's probably because you're being less efficient, and so it's just a little pick me up. On that, that 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 was my perception. One element of the system that I really liked that I wish had been used more was because everything in the game is about a track racing up the four tracks. There are a variety of effects that will allow you to advance up the track but without getting the benefit. you either do an income turn or you advance up the track and get the benefit you pay and you move your token up up there. yeah, strange that the token the the pieces that you spend the most time interacting with are also the are worst just cubes yeah. just the, just the, anyway uh, <laughs> I understand it's functional but Just a a weird element. So you move up the track and you get a benefit associated with that. Now, there are two uh, things about that that are kind of interesting, that one of which is is emphasized heavily, the other which I wish had been emphasized a little bit more, is very hard to reactivate that benefit. So the timing becomes very crucial. Well, I don't want to do that then because I, I can't go back and do that thing again. It's not like you're unlocking new actions. You're doing specific new actions every time. And the other thing is that there's some effects that allow you to advance on the track without getting the corresponding benefit. So you can get, cl- you can race to get to another benefit sooner, or you can try to go further along the track than an opponent for other exogenous reasons. I wish, actually, that, that had been a core part of the game, that somehow this would have required a significant reworking of the costs and hence the the research, uh, the research resource structure, but I wish that the, it had been a core action or a core thing you could do to go up the track without getting the associated benefit, because I think that that would have really opened up the space in a significant way, in the sense of picking your priorities rather than just racing through and doing the same track, the same procedures over and over again. Then again, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about and it still would have been just dissolved, but I thought that that was a potentially interesting aspect. Alright, looks like we covered everything on my
2: list except for one thing. I just have busy work. It just seemed like the game was busy work to me. Like we said, it felt like a big decision space, but it's just depending on what, you know, pumping victory points, you know, up one track or the other track. You're moving buildings all over the place. You're, you know, progressing these techs up and down. You know, you're you're moving all this stuff around in this like themeless, you know, engine building Euro that Really doesn't give you a sense of accomplishment
1: at the end of the game.: I don't even really think you're building much of an engine. you're mostly just opportunistically doing uh, yeah, you get more more resource generation from your capital buildings, but mostly it's about just plugging new better values into your your overall efficiency puzzle. Honestly, returning back to this issue of of trying to plot out your your turns as efficiently as you can, it reminded me a little bit of Scythe. And I think that this is probably unfair because it's by the same designer and the same publisher. But honestly, uh, I felt that it was it was like Scythe in that you have to force yourself to do very inefficient turns in order to get to the thing that's going to unlock better abilities and that you do things more efficiently. So the only difference being that Tapestry has all of the shortcomings commonly identified with Scythe. I like Scythe a lot, but I recognize it as a very plodding game. P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G. You plod along for the most part until you get to those more efficient things. And in Tapestry, you plod like crazy. It also, Tapestry also has less theme, less player interaction, it's significantly longer and also significantly more expensive. You asked a very... Yeah, that's going to be my final point. Yeah.
2: Who is this game made for, right? At its price point, it's not for, like, the intro gamer, but it feels like it's an intro game, like, Euro, Civ building, introduction game. It can't be for heavy gamers because of this randomness that, you know, you have no idea what's coming up. These super overpowered abilities and there's no way to, you know, really know that they're coming. So I'm just, I'm very confused as to
1: who this game is for. I don't necessarily think that the market is as allergic to very expensive intro games as you posit. Just because you're an intro gamer and you like games of a certain weight... Or a certain level of accessibility, I think they're still willing to pay top dollar for what it is. Uh, so tapestry is retailing for a hundred American dollars. It was the the pre-order was eighty. You know where the money goes because again the toy factor is very very high. Those buildings are very nice. And you, you definitely get your money's worth in terms of bits. I
2: know where the money's going; it goes right to StoneMeyer Games because <laughs> they didn't use a distributor or a local retail store.
1: Well, for the pre-orders, but but, but yes. the pre- the pre-orders were only eighty bucks, so yes. they did pass along a significant savings to those who who did the pre-order through their web store. I don't, I look, I don't know enough about the back end of the business part. I'm no, not that's what I'm saying. There's no back. It's not like I'm not trying to you know put shade on it. These are just facts. That's all. <laughs> Where I come down is, if the theming weren't quite so obnoxious, I would probably issue the judgment that people probably expected of us, which is that it's fine. But the fact that it is so generic in terms of how every play ends up feeling the same, and the fact that the theming is so incredibly borderline offensive to me, that I actually strongly dislike Tapestry. i strongly dislike the the experience of playing it because during these overlong turns where someone's getting two points from this and three points from this other thing and they're doing the they're they're either multiplying techs by armories or, you know, banks by conquered territory or whatever. I can't even remember what associates with which because it's also bland and themeless. I start getting angry at the game and I start thinking about how much better all the other Civ games are at evoking Civ. I used to think that Civ games were ridiculous in terms of the theming, and I probably still do, but Tapestry has set a new bar. So it makes me appreciate innovation more. I think that if you want an efficiency puzzle, you should really play Scythe I think it, it it does a lot of the same strategic and tactical trade-offs, but better. And if you want to play with a little spatial puzzle on top of an efficiency engine on top of it, play Feast And these games are cheaper, more thematic, more interactive, and most of the time, shorter in playtime as well. So I, I'm i with you. I don't know at the end of the day, I know who it's being marketed towards because Stonemaier Games has its fan base and the toy factor is huge, but I don't really know at the end of the day what the audience is for, because for your hardcore gamer, they're going to demand more and they're going to demand more variety. And I really think it's just for those intro gamers that are now looking for the next step up in terms of decision space, although not necessarily in terms of quality decision-making.
2: Yeah. Like overall I had fun playing the game. Like, don't get me wrong. this We've been, I think excessively negative and rightfully so, but overall they were fun, fun experiences for me to play. Regardless of the fact that it's 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 a bad game. And if it was suggested, I would always play it, but I would never suggest it myself.
1: I'm past that. I would know, If it was suggested I wouldn't play it, I would uh, I would leave or ask for something else to be played. It's I like I said, if it weren't for the obnoxious theming, I would probably be willing to to wallow in the mediocrity. It has left me with a strongly unpleasant reaction at the end of the day. And that's Tapestry. And that's Tapestry. By Stonemaier Games. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-O-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Guild, which is Guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace!